Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I am Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire and the host of the show. And joining me fresh off of his retreat with all the other American bishops at his old stomping grounds, Mundelein Seminary, is the great Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with you. Brandon, always a joy to be with you. Hey, catch us up a little bit. So um, we haven't talked really since Christmas. So maybe tell us yeah. a little bit about you went home to Chicago for Christmas. I did. Yeah, I saw my family because my mom is back there, my brother and sister and a lot of family and friends and people I've not seen for a long time. So I spent uh, pretty much that week, you know, right after Christmas. Um, my car, I keep a, a car that I had when I was in Chicago. My sister now you know, uses it. So I, when I, when I'm home, she lets me use it again. And, uh, using that, I just went around and visited lots of different people, mostly my family, my, my mom, who's, uh, in assisted living right now. So I spend, you know, time, good family time with them. And then it also just happened to work out that Pope Francis requested all the American bishops have this retreat and they planned it in Chicago right after yeah. Christmas. So you were already there. You got to go on this retreat. It was at Mundelein where you have spent many, many years of your life. Yeah. Give us a little uh, taste of what the retreat was like. You know, it was good. Uh, a lot of people came. I was about 250 bishops, which is a pretty good compliment. Um, that's probably what we usually get at the November meeting every year. Um, very good mood, I'd say, at the retreat. Uh, people enjoyed the camaraderie. We don't get together in that prayerful way all that often. Usually when we get together, it's for a business meeting. Um, so to be in that environment was really good. Uh, the talks were by um, Father Canta La Mesa, who is the official preacher to the papal household. He's had that job for 40 years. He told us it was in uh, 1980 he started with John Paul II. And continued all during John Paul's time and then through Benedict's time, now into Pope Francis' time. And he was good. He's 84 years old, uh, but pretty spry, um, smart, uh, very patristic. The uh, talks were not like just frothy experientialism. There was a lot of substance to them. Um, he's deeply Augustinian. He quoted Augustine like every other line. Uh, so I appreciated the intelligence and substance of his talks. Uh, he's got kind of a wry sense of humor. Um, a little playful smile is usually not far from his lips, you know. So I think we all enjoyed um, his presentations and we enjoyed the general feel of it. And another interesting thing is, I say this as a native Chicagoan, there was almost a miracle with the weather because early January typically is like the worst weather of the whole year. It's usually 10 degrees and snow and precisely for the period of the retreat. It was miserable before. It resumed being miserable today in Chicago. But for that little period, it was in the upper 40s or low 50s, plenty of sunshine. And so that was a, a real grace. We were able to get out and walk and you know see the beautiful campus and all that. One of the highlights for me, actually, a group of about 20 bishops asked me to give a tour of the John Paul II chapel. So, you know, the house chapel that, that I kind of supervised a major renovation of when I was rector. And we dedicated to John Paul II. We put in 19 beautiful stained glass windows of saints that he had beatified and so on. Um, so it was a joy for me to see it again, because I hadn't seen the chapel in over a year. Um, and then to give a tour of it to these bishops was, uh, was a great joy for me. Well, today we're going to be talking about a sort of viral New York Times op-ed piece that is making its way around the internet. It's written by Ross Douthit, who's a Catholic uh, journalist, columnist for the New York Times. 
Uh, we've worked with Ross before. He was featured in mm -hmm. our documentary series on Catholicism, the new evangelization. Um, mm -hmm. He's also the author of a best-selling book called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. That was a few years back. Um, but this article is titled The Return of Paganism, and it offers some really provocative thoughts and trends on American spirituality. I thought we'd, we'd kick it around a little bit. Okay. Okay, so he begins this article with an interesting observation, and I wanted to get your take on this. He says, even with America's churches in decline, and you and I have talked about all these statistics, yeah. the religion impulse has hardly disappeared. He says that in the early 2000s, over 40% of Americans answered with an emphatic yes when Gallup, the researching uh, group, asked them if, quote, a profound religious experience or awakening, end quote, had redirected their lives. 40% said, yes, that's happened to me. But Douthat observes that that number is double what it was in the 1960s when institutional religion was more vigorous. So as institutional religion declined, the number of people who have profound religious experiences or awakenings has, has doubled. Um, he also notes that a recent Pew survey on secularization found increases in the share of Americans who have regular feelings of spiritual peace and well-being. What do you make of that? What's your first intuition? Well, my first intuition is uh, to agree that the religious impulse never goes away. Um, it's so deep in us. We're wired for God, as Augustine taught us, and everyone knows that deep down. And so try as you might, and secularists and skeptics have been trying for centuries to knock religion out of us. Or think of someone like Marx who felt you know, the way a snake just sheds its skin, that modern people just kind of shed this old religious uh, hang-up. Freud saying much the same thing in the early 20th century, Sartre echoing that. I mean, those who predicted the demise of religion are numerous, and the one thing they all have in common is they're, they're wrong. Uh, it's so deep in us that it doesn't really go away. It is uh, re-expressed. It finds a new uh, uh, direction. Um, you know, the, the negative side of it is our friend Chesterton's famous line about when you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you, you believe in anything. That's the negative side of it. The impulse is kind of hooks on to, to whatever. Douth is pointing to something that's more positive, that, that uh, there it is, and it, it seeks legitimate uh, outlets. Now, we would say relatively adequate or relatively inadequate, but it's there stubbornly. And, and I find that uh, appealing and, and encouraging. In the work that I do, you know, that you're trying to reach out to something and you can kind of trust that you're going to find traction with almost everybody in appealing to religion. So that side of it, I think, is is right. So then Douthat continues. He notes that, you know, several years back, he said, I, Douthat, wrote this book called Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And that book argues that it's not that American culture is becoming more secular, they're throwing off religion altogether. It's that they're becoming quasi-Christian, quasi-religious. They're a nation of, of heretics. They believe some good things, some bad things. But in this new article, just a few weeks ago, he says, I've come to wonder if my earlier book was an incomplete, if not wrong. There's come a point at which a heresy becomes simply post-Christian, a moment when you should just believe people who claim they've left the biblical world picture behind, a context where the new spiritualities add up to a new religion. So he doesn't think we're becoming more secular. He doesn't necessarily think we're becoming more heretical or quasi-Christian. He thinks there's actually a new religion arising, and he later describes it as, quote, neo-paganism. 
Um, I want to dig into this neo-paganism and, and what he means and what other sociologists mean. Dalfit spends the rest of the article referencing a new book called Pagans and Christians in the City. And uh, it's written by Stephen Smith, a law professor at University of San Diego. And here's, here's what he says, this new paganism that's ari uh, arising. He says, what's yeah. happening behind the scenes in modern culture is the return of a pagan religious conception, which was half buried by the rise of Christianity, although never fully so. He says, this paganism is, paganism is not materialist or atheistic. It allows for belief in spiritual and supernatural realities, maybe even the afterlife, but it's deliberately agnostic about final things, what awaits beyond the shores of this world. It's skeptical of the idea there exists some ascetic, world-denying moral standard to which we should aspire. And then this one I think is most interesting. It sees the purpose of religion and spirituality as more therapeutic, a means of seeking harmony with nature and happiness in the everyday. Does that sound like the sort of vague spirituality you encounter among a lot of people? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I go back many years ago, my great intellectual hero, uh, Monsignor Robert Sokolowski, when he was introducing us to the great Catholic intellectual tradition, I remember very clearly he said, you know, guys, if you stop being Christian, I'd recommend you become pagan. <laughs> and his point was, that there is something very deep and true and noble in paganism. Now, what he meant by it, this goes back many years, what he meant was paganism is the great religion of the natural necessities. So he saw the, the pagan gods and goddesses as symbolic evocations of these fundamental structures, these, these necessary principles that undergird our ordinary experience. So think of, you know, the sea. Uh, so that you have the god of, of the sea of Poseidon. You have um, various gods of, of nature that represent the different aspects of nature in its beauty, in its um, uh, threat, in its unpredictability. So think now of the stories of, of the gods and goddesses who are often like oh, capricious and boy, she changed her mind quickly. Well, that's the weather. You know what I mean? That's nature. Is is your? Let's say you're bringing a group of kids out for a, um, a nature hike, and you're up in the mountains, and man, it's just beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's rich, and what an experience. But then you lose your way, and the weather changes, and now night falls, and you've lost your path. That mountain that was just intriguing and beautiful, and now becomes very dangerous indeed. You know, as I record these words, Brandon, this is the first anniversary of the terrible mudslide in Montecito that killed about 20-some people a year ago, uh, 10 minutes from where I'm sitting. The mountains here in Santa Barbara, gosh, they're gorgeous, beautiful, wonderful. And and 99 times out of 100, when you're going by, you say, wow, what a, what a privilege, you know, to live in such a place. A year ago, today, that mountain turned deadly, you know. This sort of thing is reflected in the great stories of the gods and goddesses who are capricious, it seems, and they change their mind, and they're wonderful and they're frightening. Um, take Sokolowski's point now through something like the Star Wars spirituality, you know, the Force that has both a light side and a dark side. Well, that's true. That's simply the case. When you're within the natural realm, there's this 
quality of, of reality that's both beautiful and deeply frightening. So good. There's something kind of noble and true and right in acknowledging these natural necessities. If you want, paying tribute to them, honoring them as far more powerful and ancient and enduring than you are, you know? You know that song was uh, Kansas, right? All we are is dust in the wind. That song always struck me as, as, as expressing what Sokolowski meant by classical paganism. So, I mean, we're dust in the wind. All that lasts forever is the earth and sky, right? They say that's a very ancient perspective. So honoring these gods and goddesses of the natural necessities, yeah, yeah, that's a fundamental and basically healthy form of religiosity, you know? And some of the greatest spirits in the ancient world were pagan in that sense. That, that was their their approach to, to the world. So I get it. I get it. Now, what's really interesting, and I think we'll, we'll get to this, what does the Bible add to? How does the Bible question and caution and not utterly repudiate, you know? How does it take in paganism but transform it? Those are interesting questions. And I think what Dalph is getting at is as the biblical view fades for a lot of people, what is going to reassert itself is this classical religious form, paganism. Uh, so I get that. I get that. I mean, New Age spirituality in a way is a kind of neo-paganism. Um, so sure, I get it. And it's not altogether bad. It's something you can perhaps work with when you're trying to propagate the biblical view. I know something you've harped on many times before is that materialistic reductionism, you know, or materialism, to use another phrase, won't satisfy the desires of the human heart. That when people try to live that way, they realize there's there's just something more. There's a transcendent realm beyond just the mere material world. And I think a lot of people are drawn to paganism because of that. It, it may reject, you know, the rigid, objective, moral system of Christianity. It might reject all the, the biblical additions to, to that view. But at least, you know, even the pagans recognize there's, there's more to reality than just this world. And that's part of its attraction. Well, you see, here, I don't know. I go back to Sokolowski. And if that's the, the framework, that paganism is... Um, a celebration of the natural necessities. See, one of the differences is that say what you want about the pagan gods and goddesses, they were they were realities within the framework of the world. So now think of it more in sort of mythological terms of, of the gods on Mount Olympus. They are uh, superhuman uh, figures. They're they're like us, and they're operating within the world of, of ordinary experience. Now at a higher pitch. Now, translate that into our terms, you get you get not so much Batman, but you get Superman and, and the superheroes, right, are a bit like the ancient gods and goddesses, but they're still operating within the basic context of nature. The, the fundamental biblical difference is when you talk about the God who created the heavens and the earth, which is shorthand for the whole realm of finitude, right? God is not in the world as as a, an object, as I've often said, following Thomas Aquinas and everybody else, God is not the supreme instance of a natural being. God is not, oh, the, the most fundamental of all the natural necessities. No, 
the creator God is totalitaire alitaire, as they used to say, right? He's totally other. That's a difference, I think, between classical paganism and biblical religion. That sense of, of the distinction between God and the world that has reached a new level of, 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 of intensity in the biblical revelation. All right, let's hop back to Dalvit's article here. So he's making the case that this neo-paganism is, is rising once more, but he says in order for it to, to fully revive, it needs to unite two different streams of ancient paganism. He said ancient paganism had two streams. Modern paganism needs both of them too if it's going to be successful. The first one, he says, is the tradition of intellectual and aesthetic pantheism that includes figures like Spinoza, Nietzsche, Emerson, and Whitman, and that's manifest in certain highbrow, spiritual, but not religious writers today. What's, what's he describing here? What's this tradition? Well, no, I think that's another way of saying the natural necessities, but, but call it now at the, at the uh, sublimest level. So a Spinoza or Emerson or Whitman, fundamentally pantheistic. Think of Emerson's oversoul or think of the way Whitman sort of celebrates, you know, the beauty of, of nature. Or Spinoza, who's imitated very uh, closely by Schleiermacher, the founder of modern liberal Protestantism, that identifies basically God and nature writ large, right? So think of it this way. If the gods and goddesses are relatively minor natural necessities. Think of the overarching great necessity, which is nature itself. That's God in the full sense within a pagan framework. Or if you want to use the, the Spinoza, Schleiermacher, Emerson, Whitman thing within a pantheistic framework, um, the Bible, see, will take all of that and shake it. You know what I'm saying? They're are all attempts to stay within the world of, of our experience. Uh, even you know Schleiermacher says, "Look, I'm beginning with experience, the experience of the infinite." Uh, that's the mark of liberalism, by the way, in theology, is that you start with human experience. The Bible is something else. It's the Creator God who brings into being in its totality what we mean by nature or the whole or whatever. That God has now spoken, see? And once you make that move, you're in a different spiritual space, period. Um, you're in a much more dangerous spiritual space, if I can put it that way. See, there's something, for all of its honesty, and I'm, I'm with Sokolowski, there's something beautiful, honest, noble about paganism. But for all of that, there's something relatively tame about it because you're still within the natural space, right? Then there's the Bible, which is this, you know, breakthrough, this, this word of God that comes from outside of that natural totality, turning it upside down in a way. Um, that makes all the difference. So Dalfit says the revival of this neo-paganism depends first on that, this sort of intellectual aesthetic pantheism. But then second, this one's interesting, in ancient paganism, there was always a civic religion uh, that makes religious and political du duties identical. He says it treats the city of man as the city of God or the city of gods. 
the place where we make heaven ourselves instead of waiting for the next life or the apocalypse, this imminent civic religion is gradually replacing the more biblical form of civil religion. Two examples he gives are the social justice theology of contemporary progressive politics on the one hand, or this is what I was, what especially struck me, the transhumanist projects of Silicon Valley. And one could think of, you know, figures like Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg and the quasi-religious fervor around their projects. Uh, what do you think about this second element of paganism, that it's like a, a civic paganism that makes religious and political duties? Yeah, there's a lot to that, I think. Um, you know, the title that, that the Pope now has, Pontifex Maximus, right, the, the great bridge builder, Julius Caesar had that title in the ancient world. He was the Pontifex Maximus. It was a religious role, but it was exercised by what we would call today political figures. But for the ancient uh, Romans, that distinction was not nearly as clear. Uh, they would have seen that, sure, that's a, a public role to be this um, priestly figure, um, a certain identification of the government and the societal structure with uh, the will of the gods or the goddesses. Um, we pay homage to you. You'll support the political system. Uh, yeah. You know, in a way, it's the political arrangement reflecting and uh, and uh, um, giving expression to these more fundamental natural necessities. And so I think they are woven together in classical paganism in a way that the, the Bible, think now of the prophets, the prophets who speak not from within the natural framework, but they, they channel the word of God, the creator. And, and what's their usual approach? Not, hey, you're all doing great to the kings of Israel. But usually it's a word of sharp criticism. Um, and even think of, of God vis-a-vis -vis the sacrifices of Israel. Do you think I need your sacrifices? I mean, do you think I, I'm I'm drinking the blood of goats? Do you think I'm I'm consuming the smoke of your sacrifices? God, as it were, undermining or questioning the the civic religion of ancient Israel. See, that's a different perspective. That's not the somewhat cozy, tidy pagan weaving together of the natural necessities and the political order. It's God, who's outside of the totality of finitude, who, if you want, questions both the natural necessities and the political order, see, from a higher perspective. Um, now, that's not to say that God is you know, at odds necessarily with these things. No, there's plenty of room for that. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the king of Israel, if he's morally upright, can reflect the moral seriousness of God. So that, that's true. Nevertheless, there's never a simple identification or weaving together of nature and God or politics and God. The true God transcends and questions uh, both of them. So that's a very interesting, it's a subtle point, but an important one. Uh, biblical people are always uneasy with civic religion. You know, I, there's a role for the civis, for the city, right? Uh, and Augustine acknowledges that, that, you know, there's a role for the political. But the city of God and the city of man are two very different things. And uh, woe to you if you try to to think them together too readily. And so I think that's a very valid point he's making there. I can't help but think when talking about 
paganism and the revival of neo-paganism of some of our favorite English writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Chesterton, all of whom deeply reverenced the ancient pagan traditions because yeah. they saw it as a foreshadowing of of Christ, the myth made real, you know, as, as Lewis yeah. and Tolkien said. Do you think we can we can still find sort of seeds of the word in these yeah. ancient pagan traditions? Which is exactly what the church fathers did, right? And and that phrase you just used there, which I love, the semina verbi, uh, the church fathers, that was their strategy. Now, were they critical of ancient paganism? Pick up the city of God sometime. If you want like 2,500 pages of criticism of what's really off kilter in it. Uh, but at the same time, were they willing and able to take in the best of the pagan um, spirituality, if you want? Sure. And that's the church embracing much of what we call today pagan philosophy, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, etc. I mean, these are, if you want, pagan figures. They, they were operating religiously within that framework I was describing. Okay, the church took in much of their uh, reflection. Is there a reflection even of elements of pagan religiosity? Sure, the church took in, baptized, elevated, etc. So I, I think the same move can be made today, is, is we look for semina verbi. There are semina verbi in even these forms of, of pantheism. Our friend Chesterton, who was one of his very early influences when he was still largely a, agnostic, Walt Whitman. So the young Chesterton reads Walt Whitman, uh, and, and it has a huge impact on him. Now, he leaves Walt Whitman behind in many ways, you know, but yet Whitman opened a lot of doors. You know, I think, Brandon, in our time, someone like Joseph Campbell, I've referred to a few times, uh, he's before your generation, but like 25 years ago, those famous interviews with Bill Moyers. And, and in some ways, Campbell is like a neo-pagan, where he was calling on these great ancient, now he did it in a Jungian way, these kind of archetypal forms of religiosity. Good. I know for a lot of people, Campbell opened doors to uh, faith. And may I say, in a way similar to Jordan Peterson today, who is another Jungian, looking at the archetypal dimension of the biblical stories and is calling upon, if you want, certain pagan forms of religiosity. Okay, you know, that can be a door, that can be a way in. Um, use them, don't, don't succumb to them, you know. Don't simply buy the whole pagan project, but find and use elements of it. I think that's, that's good. Douthit wraps up his article here in the New York Times by saying, it seems like we're some distance away from that happening, that being a revival of paganism from the intellectuals as pagans donning actual druidic robes or from Jeff Bezos playing Pontific, uh, Pontifex Maximus, the phrase you use for a post-Christian civic cult. Uh, now, he says, occasional experiments in woke witchcraft and astrology notwithstanding, there's a more elite embarrassment about the popular side of post-Christian spirituality. So he's a little skeptical that this neo-paganism is fully going to take off. But I guess I'd close with this question to you. Suppose you were sitting in front of someone who feels drawn to this neo-paganism, either this intellectual pantheism or this civic religion. What do you say to them as a Catholic bishop? Well, I probably um, want to get some traction and say, what are you finding most compelling in this form of religiosity? And, and they probably speak of, you know, whether it's a nature of mysticism or they'd speak of um, 
maybe a sense of connection with with the world, with nature, with people through nature, etc. Good, we can work with that. You know, I can build on that. Um, I'd probably press in that Augustinian direction again. Augustine, who reverenced, knew and reverenced so much of the pagan world, he was trained in it. It was his his milieu, you know. But then he also, from a higher perspective, turned on it in great criticism. So I might venture um, that sort of critique. If you're the least bit tempted to think that that our political order, whether it's like your social justice warrior stuff, you know, boy, oh boy, we're going to build the perfect world. Well, good luck with that project, you know. Uh, to point out the demonic elements, I'll use that strong word, but I think accurate word, the demonic elements within a pagan uh, viewpoint. Um, remember that, Brandon, several years ago I did a video on it, the um, uh, Hollywood stars all kind of extolling nature and kind of addressing nature as this great mother. And what they were all saying was she's wonderful and she is really a, a, a tough mama. I mean, nature is not someone you want to mess with. And I, I said, yeah, right. That's right. You start treating nature as God. Well, you're in relation to a very ambiguous reality. You know, I mean, you're that's, that's a very dangerous uh, conversation partner. The true God, who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now we're in a different spiritual space. And I would suggest a much healthier spiritual space. So I would I, I try to find some traction and then I would point out the limitations of this pagan approach. That sound means it is time for our regular question. If you have a question, send it in to us. We'd love to hear it. Just visit askbishopbaron.com and record your question on any device. Today we hear from David in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's got a really interesting question here about Jesus and the second coming. So here's David's question. Hi, Bishop Barron. This is David, and I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina. My question is about the second coming of Christ. Why would God have wanted two comings? In other words, why not just accomplish at his first coming what we expect him to do in the second? Why give us this in-between time? God bless. Hmm. That's good. You know, here's my basic answer. I don't know. <laughs> I say that because you're dealing with a person. You're dealing with God whose intentions we can't finally uh, fathom. So the answer to a lot of questions about the particularities of, of how and why God acts is appropriately, I don't know, you know. Um, I, let, I let God do what God wants on his own terms. Now, having said that, that remains in place. Can we gesture toward answers? And, and perhaps this way. It seems to be, just looking at nature, you know, history as well, but it seems to be a preference of God that things happen gradually, you know. The, the law of, of gradual process seems to hold, doesn't it, across the board, the way things gradually come to be. The child in the womb, uh, all of us moving our way through life, plants and animals that grow and develop and unfold. It seems to be part of God's uh, plan and so the history of salvation, too, unfolds and evolves in different stages. Now, next up, 
why would that be to our advantage? Well, think if everything is just said and done at one time, boom, over, done. Well, then what role is there for us with our own minds and wills and energies and passions and projects to participate in what God is doing? See, Aquinas says that God delights in using secondary causes and in giving those causes what he calls the dignitas causalitatis, the, the dignity of causality, that, that we can participate in a very real way in, in the work of, of God. So between the first and second comings, what do we find? But the church, the era of the church. And the church is the growth of God's kingdom under the guidance of the Holy Spirit on, on earth. And think now of all the all the priests, prophets, and kings, all the baptized over these these now 20 centuries, who've been able to participate in this great providential work of God. That wouldn't have happened if it was all done in the first coming. But this, if you want, lovely space that opens up between the first and second coming is the space of the church, where, hey, now I can get into this game. I, I can play, you know. Um, if it's all done for me once and for all, it, it seems to obviate the law of process, and it also obviates my, my own participation, you know, in that dignitas causalitatis. So that's a, at least a gesture toward the answer, which is finally, I don't know. <laughs> it's in God's uh, uh, providence. Well, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode. If you want to read the full article that we've been discussing by Ross Douthat, we've linked to it here in the show notes. Also, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, pick up Bishop Barron's latest book. It's called Arguing Religion, A Bishop Speaks at Facebook and Google. It is now the number one new release on Amazon in both the Catholicism and the atheism categories, which is kind of exciting. So go to wordonfireshow.com slash religion to pick it up. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.